Well, this morning we are going to finish up our study of the 12 disciples listed in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. And uh, if you've been with us, you've known we've kind of paused over those verses and tried to sort of blow that up and and see a greater understanding of just this list of names. Oftentimes you read lists of names in the Bible and kind of just sort of plow through them and keep on reading, but really these names exist there for a reason. And we've really only dipped our toe into the study. We really could have spent multiple Sundays on several of the disciples. I found myself sort of handcuffed because you get to the life of Peter or of John or James and you feel like, ah, there's just so much I want to talk about. Uh, but you can't because we're just moving faster through that. But uh, really, we have cover- covered quite a bit of ground. Uh, in addition to just learning about the lives of Peter and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Thomas and so on, we've really tried to explore uh, several themes inherent in the stories. You know, there are pervasive themes that are uh, seen in their life and in their ministry. And we've talked even on, in the mornings here on uh, the issue of humility. And we've talked about truth and love and having a sound confession and being faithful and having unity and all these different themes and topics really wrapped up in the stories of these disciples. And more than merely serving to uh, inspire us as heroes, really these disciples teach us much about the Christian life and their example and testimony are witnesses to us as believers. There is, however, one disciple who teaches us much not by his faithful testimony or his Christian love, but by his treachery. This is the story of Judas Iscariot. He is the last name on our list, and we're going to spend some time looking at his story. For as long as humanity has existed, there had been the problem of false faith, even treachery and malice and hypocrisy. And the reason for this is because of the entrance of sin into the world. As soon as sin sin comes into the world uh, through Adam and Eve, uh, everything just starts to fall apart. We are reminded of the story of Cain, who is the son of Adam and Eve. And even though he went through the practice of offering sacrifice to the Lord, ultimately his sacrifice was not acceptable to God because of his own hard-heartedness and unbelief. The Lord accepted Abel's earnest offering... But when that happened, Cain became angry and retaliated by murdering his brother. And if you think that, you know, things have gotten worse and worse and worse, and it was so much better back then, you have to think about this. Uh, The third person in history killed the fourth person in history. So this problem of sin has been as pervasive since the beginning. We read about the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 10 and so on. He began his reign by submitting to the Lord and, and blessed. he was blessed by God. But then in selfishness and in jealousy, he turned away from the Lord in his reign. He did what was evil. He even tried to murder young David. After the series of disobediences, Saul loses his throne to David and he dies by throwing himself onto his own sword. Out of all the kings of Israel... And Judah, one king stands out as the worst, and that is King Ahab. In fact, 1 Kings 16.33 notes that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel who were before him. The most disheartening part about all of this is that he would have claimed to have been sitting in the throne of David, even though he wasn't. He claimed to have been offering true worship in the temple, but he was not. He was worshiping false gods. Under the guise of virtue was he reigning, even though his ministry, his reign was rife with sin and wickedness. 
These are examples, my friends. Cain and Saul and Ahab. Examples in Scripture of those who claimed to worship God and serve God, but yet were found to be liars and frauds. And the worst of all of these was a man named Judas Iscariot. We know his name even in popular culture. Even though maybe people don't know the story of Judas, we have even a phrase. You know, when someone stabs you in the back and hurts you, you say, oh, you're being a Judas. Nobody names their kids Judas anymore, do they? That's kind of been long gone for a while. Judas Iscariot is named very last in all the lists in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in every single reference that's made to Judas, he's always noted to be some kind of betrayer. The name Judas itself however, is a common name. It's derived from Judah, which means Jehovah, God, leads. So the name itself is actually not a bad name. We use names like Jude today. So Jude would be a more common iteration, or even Judah. But the name Iscariot is likely a reference to his place of origin. Many scholars render the name Man of Kerioth, and Kerioth would have been a small town in southern Judah. So we think his name is Judas, the son, or a man of Kerioth. We have no reason to think that Judas wasn't raised in a good religious home. He was a devout Jew, at least by upbringing. All those people would have been at that time. His calling is not recorded for us in Scripture. But we do know that the Lord personally called him to follow himself. And none of the other disciples would have had any other reason to doubt the genuineness of his faith. Meaning that he didn't come in with this reputation for being this rotten guy. He would have followed right in suit with everybody else who was following Christ. Yet, however, there is one person who knew from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. We read about in John chapter 6, which teaches us uh, that that these uh, events take place in John 6, and it's the first year of Jesus' ministry, and he begins teaching in a way that is very difficult. He's teaching, uh, he's preaching sermons and he's teaching doctrine that is so difficult for the ears that people just got so angry at the things that Jesus was saying. They, They believed his theology was abhorrent. We know that it certainly is not. But it got to the point where many people stopped following Jesus in John chapter 6. And after the mass exodus away from Jesus, he turns to the remaining disciples, including Judas, by the way, standing in their midst. And he asks if they, too, are going to leave and stop following him. And Peter answers for the group in verses 68 and 69, and he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And then he speaks for the brothers, he says, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We looked at last week, the Holy One of God, that's the proper revered title of the Lord God, the Holy One. So Peter is saying, we know who you are, and we believe you. We're here for you. And Judas, standing in the midst, would have been shaking his head, saying, yeah. To which Jesus enigmatically asks this, did I myself not choose you, the twelve? And then he says, but yet one of you is a devil. And then John, the gospel writer at that time, the one who penned the gospel, adding his own explanation, his own comments in verse 71. And he says of the occurrence, he says, Now Jesus uh, met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Not only did Jesus be made aware, he was aware of Judas's coming betrayal, but he even called him to follow while knowing this. 
This has led many philosophers and theologians to ask, why would Jesus intentionally call somebody to follow him, knowing that they would ultimately betray him? Well, that's been challenging scholars for ages. We're going to look at that a little bit later on. Uh, as you can imagine, there are theological implications that go beyond a one-sermon overview of his life. Then you're getting into the, the sovereignty of God and divine uh, and human responsibility and the will of God and the will of all this different kind of thing. Maybe we'll do a, a series someday on theodicy or the will of God. I don't know. We'll get there. But we will talk about this just a little bit. We ought to note, however, that despite Judas's imminent betrayal, Jesus still treats him with kindness and with care. He offers him really a place of blessing in the twelve, among the twelve. Jesus would have prayed with Judas. He would have instructed him and taught him. He would have eaten meals with him. He slept next to him when they were all making their encampment. I mean, these men lived together and sweat together and were persecuted together. They had hardships together for several years, for three years. He sent Judas out to preach to the lost sheep of Israel in Matthew chapter 10. He sent him out with the 70 in Luke chapter 10. More than likely, ponder this, there are people in heaven who came to believe the gospel through the ministry of Judas Iscariot. Can you imagine that badge of honor? Who led you to Christ? Judas did. So my point is is that he would have been declaring a saving gospel. How do we know this? Because nobody ever rebukes him for saying the wrong thing. He was faithful, at least in his earthly charge. He said the things that he was supposed to say along with the other disciples. They had no reason to doubt him. But Jesus befriended Judas. We even see him wash his feet at the Last Supper. And all the while, warning the group, warning the group that there was a traitor in their midst. And I firmly believe that part of the reason within the sovereign will of God, in terms of human responsibility, one of the reasons that Jesus kept on warning and warning and warning was to give Judas opportunity to repent, at least in the flesh. Now again, we're talking about the divine will of God and why Judas had to come. We'll talk about that shortly. But the question is, did Judas receive Jesus' kindness in a way that would have produced repentance? Romans 2.4 says the kindness of God leads to repentance. When God pours out blessing to you and you're in sin, very often within His sovereign will and His effectual calling, His kindness in your life will draw you to Him and will lead you to a place where you say, Lord, You're so good to me, and yet I'm sinful and I I do all these things I don't want to do. That's not Your fault, it's mine. Please forgive me. The kindness of God actually leads to repentance of sin. It's an amazing thing. But did Judas repent of his secret sins? Of his scheming and of his conniving? Did he embrace Christ with faith and with love? Not even close. Go to Mark chapter 14 in your Bible. Mark 14. The events of Mark chapter 14, they take place during Passion Week. Passion Week, which is the last week of the earthly life of Jesus before He goes to the cross. 
Just to give you context, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday on the back of a donkey that was prophesied even back to the Old Testament. And the crowds are cheering for him, save now, save now. They think he's the the coming king to overthrow the Romans and declare the supremacy of the Jewish nation. He's going to do all these amazing things to deliver the people from their oppressors, not understanding that the primary reason Jesus came to earth the first time was to deliver his people from the oppression of their own sin and to save them spiritually and to deliver them out from the domain of darkness and transfer us into the kingdom of His beloved Son into heaven. That your soul is so much more important than your earthly body because your soul is eternal. you got a hundred years here. So Jesus came for for the deliverance and for the redemption of His people. That even now, and I would even stop right now and say that if you're outside of Christ, if you don't know Jesus Christ... There is always opportunity, as long as you're alive, to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus and say, God, I need you in my life, and I need to surrender to you. I want you to save me. And that can only happen through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his death paying for my sins. And so I would entreat you to turn to Jesus in faith and in repentance. But Jesus has come into Jerusalem He's there for the week, and he's living and staying in the surrounding regions, and he's doing his ministry there. And on Wednesday of that week, he goes into the home of a man named Simon. And he was called Simon the leper. I'm thinking he's a former leper. Jesus has likely healed this man, and now they're having dinner at his house. But they're there at this dinner. And then we behold, really, an amazing spectacle in Mark chapter 14, verses 1 through 11. The text says this. Now the Passover and unleavened bread were two days away, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise otherwise there might be a riot of the people. But while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume of pure nard, And she broke the vial and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and money given to the poor, and they were scolding her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you bother her? She has done a good deed to me. For you will always have the poor with you, and wherever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priest in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him money. And he began seeking how to betray him at an opportune time. And so here we have this really remarkable event here. This account is both sweet and sad. It is both beautiful and horrible. Now many scholars have connected what happens here in Mark 14 with the events that take place in John chapter 12. 
The only issue really is the chronology. Mark records this on Wednesday. John records a, an account like this on Sunday. It's possible this kind of a thing happened twice in two different uh, uh, areas here, two different times. But many believe that this is the same event. And if that's the case, then this woman here is Mary, who is the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Mary is the one anointing Jesus. But let's look at this account. We see here really the self-sacrificing devotion of Mary contrasted with the self-seeking greed of Judas Iscariot. Verse 3 notes that this woman, Mary, again, who we're, that's who we're calling, she comes to Jesus with a very expensive vial, a bottle of pure nard. If you've ever uh, smelled, it's uh, spike nard is really what it is. I have a little vial of it on my desk that I keep. And every now and then I'll actually open it and I'll smell it. And there's a reason for that. I'll, maybe I'll tell you one of these days. I'll tell you anyway. Uh, no, this is a, it's, a very, it's a very potent smell. If you've ever smelled it, it's very aromatic. The reason I have it and the reason I think this is significant is because uh, Jesus' body is anointed. So whether this is on Sunday or on Wednesday, he goes to the cross on, on Friday. And he, is, he has this oil poured over his head. We think he also had it poured on his feet. But the point is, is that this odor would have been on his body. At one point it says that, that the whole smell filled the room. This is such a potent thing. One little drop on your body is enough. But to have all this poured over your whole body, uh, that you would have smelled like this for days, possibly even weeks. So the smell of spike nard, that is what Jesus would have smelled like going to the cross. The smell of spike nard mixed with the smell of his sweat and even of his blood. So you want to know what Jesus smelled like in the nostrils of the soldiers as they nailed his hands and feet to the cross? That's what he smelled like. That's why I keep the bottle at my desk. But anyway, this oil is extracted from a plant out of East India. It's easier to get today. It was very difficult to get back then. And the text says that it's worth, at that time, about 300 denarii. Now, that's about a year's wage. So imagine taking a year's worth of wages and purchasing one item. That's the one item that she has that is worth all of that. Now, this may have been a family heirloom. It could have been a prized possession, a gift that someone had given her. Whether or not it was, whatever it was to her, she gave all of this up in one action to anoint the body of Jesus. Again, Mark says that she anoints his head. John says that she anoints his feet. It's probably both. She probably started with his head and wiped and poured it on his head and then washed his feet with this nard. But it's obviously something that moves Jesus very deeply. Verse 6 says that he calls this a good deed done for me. Noting that she was symbolically anointing his body for burial. Why is that significant? Normally, you would have done this after a person dies. So in that custom, a person dies, you take their body and you wash the body and you anoint it with oil and you pack it with spices. And then when the body is put into the tomb, it really acts as a deterrent for the smell and for even some of the decay. But that would have been proper. That would have been a proper burial to anoint the body in preparation. But she does this for him before he goes she anoints his body before he dies. That might seem strange at first, but what this tells us and what it shows him is that she understands that he's about to go and die. 
He's been telling the disciples for a long time, I'm going to go, the chief priests are going to you know, persecute me and kill me, I'm going to go under the ground and be buried, I'm going to come back. And all the time, they're, oh, no, Lord, no, Lord. She would have paid attention. And so she's anointing his body. This is a sign of her love and her devotion to him. Lord, you have said that you're going to die for my sins. You've said you're going to give yourself for me. What can I do? What could I possibly give you in response to your salvation except to pour out my love and devotion for you? This is the most costly thing that I have. I'm going to break it and give it to you and anoint your body for burial. What else do I have? That's the sentiment, my friends. This is a beautiful and remarkable gesture done by a sincere woman of faith. However, this elicits a strong response from the disciples, namely one of them. Now, Mark doesn't record who says this, but John does. John actually goes back into the story years later and and tells us in his gospel who this was. And we know because the same question is posed in both places and it's attributed to Judas Iscariot. The question recorded in both Mark and John is this, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? You could have used this to, to give to poor people, right? I mean, that's, a, that's a seemingly pious sentiment. I mean, who doesn't want to give money to the poor, right? That seems like an earnest thing. I mean, helping the poor is a noble cause. I mean, that would have been the point of the gesture. But look what Jesus says in verses 7 through 9. Again, I'm still in Mark 14 here. He says, For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you wish, you can do good to them. Listen, anytime you want to help people, you have opportunity. There are so many opportunities to help other people. You can take them at leisure. In my experience, the people who complain the most about what we could have done never do anything. They just complain about, oh, we could have helped the poor. You never help anybody. But it's the one who actually helps other people. They never say a peep, do they? They just serve. They just help people. Beware of those who blow a trumpet before they do good deeds. But Jesus says, you'll always have them with you. You can always help them. He says, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She's anointed my body for the burial. For truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. How has that come true? How has that promise come true that whenever this gospel is preached, we'll remember her? She's in the Bible. How many times has this account been preached in the last 2,000 years? We remember Mary's sacrifice, and so Jesus' promise is true. We're still talking about Mary today. The words of the Lord have come true. But again, this is a seemingly pious thing. But Jesus says there's always opportunities you can help people. You can take those opportunities. But this extravagant gesture, this was done to Jesus specifically because he was about to give himself up on the cross. This was a a totally and utterly unique experience, a unique event. This is the single greatest act in human history. I don't think they really fully understand what he was about to do. I think it's pretty clear that they didn't fully understand. And even after he died and came back, didn't exactly fully understand. It wasn't, I don't believe, until Pentecost that they really got what's going on here. This is salvation. This is regeneration. People are being born again. New lives. Lives are being changed. The world's going to change now. 
because of what Jesus has done. But look at what is expressed by Judas. And again, Mark does not attribute this to him, but it is certainly his sentiment. Look at verse 4. What is the, what is the question he asks in verse 4? Why has this perfume been wasted? Judas isn't inquiring. He's not saying, gee, I wonder why you've done what you've done with this perfume. This is an accusation. This is an accusation. In fact, layered into the text are a bevy of comments as to the condition of his own heart. Mark records that he utters this statement with anger and with indignation. He's fuming mad when this happens. John records that Judas wasn't actually concerned about the poor at all. He says because he was a thief, John says. And as he had access to the money box, he used to pilfer what was put inside of it. So when they actually did do things for the poor, Judas was pulling money out so they couldn't do more for the poor. So Judas is a liar and a hypocrite. He wasn't concerned about the poor at all. See, Judas didn't care about them. He wanted to cash that money in and put it in his own pocket. He was the embodiment of what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, that it's the love of money. That's the root of all sorts of evil. And many who have chased after it have pierced themselves with many a pang. He had seared his own conscience. He had wounded his own soul by his greed and his avarice. He didn't care about the poor at all. Didn't care about anything except himself. And what's even more egregious, my friends, than robbing from the poor is his abject disgust for Jesus. Jesus Christ, who had befriended him for three years, who's about to die and pay for sins, to sacrifice himself so that the poor in spirit would have life. And Mary, who understood the value of this, gave up her whatever she had for his sacrifice, offered him this devotion in kind. But Judas, listen to this, Judas calls it a waste. Why have you wasted this on him? Why would you pour that on his head and his feet? That's disgusting. Why would you waste all that? Fathom what he's saying. I've read this account so many times, it still turns my stomach. It still grieves me that somebody would look at Jesus Christ. Such a grotesque statement to make that they would look on the Son of God, the only perfect being in history, the one who would give himself for us, and see this small offering of devotion and say, that's a waste. That breaks my heart. This is the same contempt that Satan has for Jesus. And the truth is, Judas was so in love with himself and repulsed by Jesus, this was the last straw. This is it. See, this had been growing and building in him over the course of time. How do we know that? The Bible doesn't say, oh, it had been growing over the course of time. But if you look at the events, if you look at the timing of the events, all throughout the Gospels, the writers are hinting he was about to betray him. He was about to betray him. He was going to betray him. And there's this dripping in of this prophecy. And then this is the last night. 
after this happens, the very next thing he does is he leaves the dinner and he goes to the chief priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin in order to sell him out to death. If I can't get money from the money box, I'll get it from the Sanhedrin. That's his reason. That's his logic. But the sad irony of the whole thing is that he doesn't get 300 denarii. He doesn't get a year's wage by selling out Jesus. The same value he hoped to sell the perfume for. Rather, he has to settle for a meager 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave. So Judas doesn't sell his soul at the value of an extravagant gift. He sells his own soul at slave price. But it couldn't be more fitting. Because Judas is a servant, a slave of his own sin and of the enemy. But I think there's something for us to see here. And it's scary when I think about the Judases that exist in the visible church. How do we know that there are Judases in the visible church? Because Jesus says that there are. He says in Matthew 7, many will come to me saying, oh Lord, Lord, didn't we do wonderful works in your name and in your name cast out demons and perform mighty signs? And Jesus turns to them and he says, depart from me. I never knew you. People are going to come to Jesus on the last day and say, oh, I did amazing things for you. And he's going to say, I have no idea who you are. You sat in church, you sang songs, you looked pious, you had a Bible under your arm, but Jesus is going to say, I never knew you. We never had a relationship. So we know from Jesus' own words that there are Judases existing in the visible universal church. People who look the part, even talk the part, but inwardly don't belong to God. And the question is, how do you know? How do you know? Because people, you hear, you hear a sermon like this, and I always feel bad for visitors when they come in and hear a sermon on Judas Iscariot. But in the providence and the sovereignty of God, maybe this is for you. Because I would say that there are at least two key ways to know whether or not that this concept is talking about you. And maybe you've been sitting in these pews for the last nine years, and this is you. I don't know the condition of your heart. I think I know a lot of you. But in the end, only God knows who you are. Am I a false convert? Am I not who I claim to be? The first thing to note about Judas, and this can be instructive for us and helpful for us, here's the first thing to know about Judas. Judas had no love for Jesus Christ. Now, it's not that he had a little love for Jesus Christ. It's not that he had a small and growing love, because that's where a lot of us are even today. I know that I don't love Jesus as much as I ought to, but I do, and I want to love him more. That's very different than no love at all. No thankfulness for salvation. No desire to grow. No, a false convert has no love for Jesus, no faith, no devotion, no desire to please Him. Christians are those that even though we're sinful and we're flawed and we make mistakes constantly and we can't sometimes seem to get out of our own way, Christians are those who, in the end, desire 
to please God and obey Him because their heart has been changed by Him. Lord, I cannot get out of my own sinful way, but I want to please You. Why? Because You've saved me by Your grace through my faith in You. You glorify Yourself through train wrecks like me in Your faithfulness. God, You deserve glory. You're worthy to be praised. That you would even save one of us is a miracle, yet you save countless people. That's very different than a person who has a stone in their chest where a heart should be. A person who has no love. And bring in Jesus' teaching on the vine and the branches in John 15. Also those who bear no fruit. He doesn't say a little fruit. Because those, there are people who are still growing or are young in their faith who have a little fruit and it's growing and it's blossoming. But Jesus says those who bear no fruit are cut off and thrown into the fire. So we would do ask, well to ask ourselves, do I have a love for Jesus? My friends, search your hearts. Examine yourselves. Do I have love for Jesus? Do I see Him as He really is? As the beloved Son of God who didn't have to come but did come into the world? Not a victim of an unjust, oppressive government. No, a person who came willingly, who told His followers, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I did not come to the world to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to give my life. I can give my life and take it up. This charge I've received from my Father over and over again. He says, I'm not here against my will. I'm here to do the will of my Father and die and give my life for you. Do you love the one who's done this? Examine your hearts. Because if you don't, and you're just playing church, my heart breaks for you. Don't come here and play church. Don't patronize yourself and the rest of the other people here. Don't patronize the Lord. You don't think God sees what exists inside of you? You don't think God knows what you're thinking and you're feeling? Whether you're self-willed or God-willed? I'm not telling you this to scare you or to shove you around. I'm pleading with you that you would examine your heart. And if you get to a place where you realize, you know what? I don't think I love Jesus. Then ask yourself, why? And I'll tell you, my friends, it's as simple as this. Go to God and say, God, I don't think I have love for you, but I want to. Give me faith. Give me love. Give me understanding. And by God's grace, He will. God is faithful and He's able to give you faith, to manifest in you desires and affections for Christ. The Spirit is able to overpower and overthrow your stubbornness and your selfishness and your sinfulness to bring you to the Father. So ask Him, Lord, deliver me. Deliver me. Again, those who have no love for Christ. That's the spirit of Judas Iscariot. See, a love for Christ, my friends, creates a love for His Word. If you love Jesus, 
you want to know Him and you begin to love the Bible. You begin to love His Word. You want to read. You want to know what's in there. And you might look at a, a book that's got a thousand pages and go, oh, I don't know. Let me just tell you, one bite at a time, my friends. Just take your time. If you need help, just ask me or ask another believer who's been in the faith a little bit longer than you. We're here to help you. Seriously, to get into the Bible, to learn how to read and study and to meditate on the Word of God. But a love for Christ creates a love for His Word. And guess what? A love for Christ creates a love for His church. Where you don't just come to show up and look good. You're here because you want to worship God and you want to be with other people who worship God with you. And you want to pray for them and love them and serve them and be with them when they're hurting and rejoice when they're excited and doing well. You want to intercede for the saints and pour your lives into them. Where the church becomes to you family. And in many regards, more than family. I praise God that I personally have family here, but I look out over the entire congregation and I have family here. And I pray to God that you do too. That's what church is all about about a body of believers, of people who are called together under the banner of Christ to love each other and serve each other. And then a love for the the Lord and a love for His Word, a love for His church. You're going to have a love for His Gospel too because the Gospel message is what goes out to the other people in the world and draws them in. You tell people about Jesus Christ. You don't evangelize because you want to be a jerk and win people over to your church. No, you evangelize because this good news is what brought you to Jesus and saved you. And out of the abundance of love and kindness and, and the joy of the mercy of God, you want other people to know. Because I love you, I want you to see that Jesus died for your sins and paid for you and can redeem you and bring you to Himself. I talk to other pastors, other churches, and... I'm aware that people move around from church to church and there's reasons for leaving a church and go to another church. And I've always believed that if we lose people out of this assembly for whatever reason and they go to another Bible church, a gospel preaching church, it doesn't really bother me. I mean, I miss them. I'm fine losing a believer to another good church, but I do not want to lose a person to the enemy who just stops coming and stops engaging and falls off the wagon and stops reading the Bible and stops praying and just and they're gone. That breaks my heart. But in terms of territory, I don't care where we are. I want us here, obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't be pastoring this church. But in the end, this is about the glory of God and His kingdom. I rejoice that there are believers in Alton gathering for worship. There's believers in Loudoun and Concord and all the way up here in West Stewartstown, New Hampshire. There are believers everywhere praising God right now with us. And that's a win for the kingdom. And so a love for God produces a love for His gospel and a love for His ministry and a love for His kingdom. One of the saddest things I've even heard of is that of a pastor who refuses to preach the gospel. And there are countless men and women who call themselves pastors in New Hampshire who will not preach the gospel. Let me tell you, you have to hate Jesus to not preach His gospel. That's the spirit of Judas Iscariot. That is a lovelessness toward the Lord and toward His people to withhold the Gospel from people who need it. 
And woe to any pastor who will not preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. But blessed are those who joy and delight, and all of you who joy and delight in proclaiming the gospel wherever you can. Judas went to the chief priests and he made arrangements to deliver Jesus over to them. He just needed to figure out when and how to do it. But this wasn't just a stumble, trip, and fall, and oh, I betrayed my Lord. This was a calculated, meticulous, planned thing. He wanted to try to find the right time, and guess what? The next day was the day that he chose to do it. He was at the Last Supper. All the disciples are gathered together to eat this meal, the Passover meal, and they all would have eaten the food and drank and sang and prayed together. And then Jesus drops the bomb. If you're still in Mark 14, dart your eyes over to verse 18. They're at the Last Supper here. Verse 18, as they were reclining at the table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. And they began to be grieved and say to him, one by one, Surely not I. And he said to them, It is one of the twelve who dips with me in the bowl. For the Son of Man is to go, just as it is written of Him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. At that point, the disciples are freaking out. What do you mean one of us is going to betray you? Again, they didn't know. It wasn't like Judas was obvious. They didn't know. And here's the kicker. Judas even said, Lord, not me knowing full well what he had just done. He's already planning to do it. But all the disciples are concerned, who's going to betray him? John records for us, John 13, 26, that Jesus answered, it is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel of bread and give it to him. And the Bible says he dipped the morsel of bread and handed it to Judas Iscariot. And Judas took it. And the Bible says at that point, Satan entered into Judas. Judas is already serving Satan at that point. He's already hardened his heart to the Lord, but now the devil himself enters into the person of Jesus, uh, Judas excuse me, in order to complete the betrayal. And with that, Judas goes off into the night. And a few hours later, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to the Father. He's in agony about what he has to go and do to go and give his life. Yes, he did it willingly, but the, on his human side, touching his human nature, Jesus is just plagued with the fear of what's going to happen in his own body, the anxiety of it, to the point where he was sweating drops of blood. He was in such agony knowing what he has to do not just to go and give his life and be crucified by the Romans. Worse than that. You might ask, well, what's worse than being nailed to a cross and whipped and spit on and hang there to die for hours and hours? What's worse than that? Being forsaken by the Lord God. He knew he was going to have to go endure the full wrath of God on himself. And it grieved him. Lord, I don't want to have to go through this, but I will. Not my will, but yours be done. 
So as Jesus is contemplating and praying and wrestling in Himself, Judas shows up. And he arrives with an army of soldiers in tow. And John records that Jesus asks, Whom do you seek? And they reply, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answers, I am. And as soon as He says, I am, the entire army falls over backwards onto the ground. But then Judas comes forward. And Matthew and Mark both record that Judas had already given them a sign. All right, fellas. I'm gonna sh- I know we're asking for Jesus, but just in case there's some, there's some monkey business going on, just in case Peter decides to go up front and say, I'm Jesus, I'm going to show you who he is. I'm going to go up and I'm going to kiss him on the cheek. So whoever I kiss... That's your man to go arrest and kill, okay? That's what he was doing. He's plotting. And so he goes up, he runs up, and he exclaims, Rabbi! And he kisses him on the cheek. But then Jesus responds, Judas? Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? That's how it's going to be, friend? After three years with you? After never speaking an unkind word to you? After serving you? After washing your feet last night? You betray me with a kiss? But it was done. And Jesus is led off by the Romans. They had their man. This betrayal would have been heartbreaking for Jesus. But not unexpected. The Bible had prophesied Christ's betrayal in many places. Psalm 41, the one prior to the one that we read this morning, a psalm of David foretold of a personal betrayal. David writes this, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. This is fulfilled at the Last Supper. Psalm 55, David writes, Not of a sworn enemy, but verse 13, it is you, a man of my equal, my companion and my very familiar friend. We had sweet fellowship together. We walked to the house of God. Judas, I went and I worshiped God with you. I stood next to you and recited the Psalms. We sang together. Wasn't my enemy that betrayed me, it was my friend. But the worst part about all of it is he had sold him out for money. And then we read of Judas's end. Go to Matthew 27. Just back a couple pages in your Bible. Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27 really drops us in in terms of the storyline Right after Jesus' arrest, even after Peter's denial. Peter denies Jesus three times. Of course, is later restored and we would see that. But we read about this in Matthew 27, right at the beginning. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put Him to death. And they bound Him and they led Him away and delivered Him to Pilate, to the governor. Then when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that he had been condemned, he felt remorse 
and returned the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to that yourself. And he threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed. And he went away and hanged himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury, since it is the price of blood. And they conferred together and with the money bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which is spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of one whose price has been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave it to them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. And so here Judas, he realizes what he's done. And the Bible says he felt remorse. But let me tell you, remorse is not the same as repentance. Because lots of times we do the wrong thing and you feel bad. Even people who get caught in their transgression, but oftentimes they feel bad not because they've actually sinned, but because they got caught sinning. And they fear uh, the repercussions of it. But here we know that Judas never repents. How do we know? Well, because over and over again, Scripture tells us that he was a son of destruction. He was a son of perdition. He belonged to the powers of hell. He had no repentance. We've already seen he has no love for Christ, no faith, nothing at all. He just realizes that, oh man, I betrayed innocent blood. That was bad. It's interesting to note that after Peter's denial, he flees the night in tears. So if you stack these up together, it's very interesting. Peter denies knowing the Lord Jesus three times. Judas betrays him for money. But when Jesus catches back up to Peter later in John 21, what does he ask him? It's very interesting. When we think about the tests of faith that we're talking about today, he doesn't ask him, Simon, son of John, have you repented for your sins? He doesn't ask him that because he knows he wept bitterly over his sins and desires to come back and be in fellowship with Jesus. He knows he's repented. He doesn't ask him, Simon, son of John, do you believe in me? He knows he believes in him. We read about Peter's confession of faith back in Matthew 16. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus says to him, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. He knows his confession of faith is real. It's genuine. What does he ask him? Simon, son of John, do you love me? And three times he asks him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And three times Peter, our brother, he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Third time, yes, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And then Peter, or excuse me, Jesus restores him, not only to fellowship, but even to ministry. See, Judas kissed Jesus but didn't love him. Judas is a false convert. Now I noted earlier, I said there are two 
real key things here to note about how to know if this may or may not be you. And I said the first test is, do you have a love for Christ? And if we could note a second condition, it would be this. That Judas willfully and deliberately betrayed Christ. It was intentional. And the reason I'm even pointing this out is because I hear this all the time. People get scared that somehow in their life they're going to trip up and accidentally sin against the Lord and ruin it for themselves and become Judas Iscariot. But I want to encourage you that the Bible teaches that doesn't happen that way. You, you can't commit the unpardonable sin by tripping up and falling into it. That's not the point. See, false converts forsake the Lord outwardly, what they do deliberately, because they have no love for Him inwardly. The inward lack of love produces the outward intentional denials of Christ and the deeds. And so this is not something that you can just stumble into. Now, you can harden your own heart over time, which is why the Scriptures call us to be diligent, to examine yourself, to test yourself, to even work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You should be attacking your own heart and your own conviction all the time and saying, I want to make sure. Is my faith real? And you pray and you say, Lord, help me today. Give me grace and Lord, encourage my heart. And if I've sinned against you even today, forgive me and help me to move forward, Lord. I want to honor you. That's the heart of a person who loves the Lord. But a person who schemes and who twists things around. I, I always shudder to think about stories I hear of people who are in the church, servants and deacons and elders and pastors who, after they're gone and after everything's come out in the wash, that over the course of sometimes even decades, they have been calculated in their betrayal of the people They've stolen money from the church or they were prying on people for their own desires or even worse, they were plotting even to do harm to people. And it's found at that point that they are not of us because they went out from us, as John says. They're found to be betrayers of the Lord. But friends, let me make my final plea to you. Examine yourself. Ask yourself, Do I love Jesus Christ? Do I believe and trust His promises? Am I thankful for His sacrifice for me that He paid for sins? And if the answer is an honest no, then I would say this. If you were to die today and you consider your own mortality, where would you go? And so many people say, well, I I guess I'd go to heaven. Why? Why would a holy and righteous God bring you into heaven for eternal joy and peace and rejoicing to be with Him when you have said that you don't even love Him? Why would God overlook all of your life of sin and your transgressions and your abject hatred for Him? Why would He bring you into His house? Why would He forgive you? And you say, well, I hope I've done enough good in this world. The Bible says you haven't, and you can't. There's none righteous before God, not even one. But the Bible also teaches that there is hope. 
Because the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is enough to pay for and cover and restore and renew you. That Jesus giving His life for you is enough. That Jesus was betrayed and crucified and died to make the only acceptable offering to God for all of your sins. And so a Christian goes and stands before God and says, Lord, I'm not worthy to come into Your house. But Jesus Christ, Your Son, the perfect and holy One, has paid for me. And the Bible says that God adopts us as children and brings us into His house and seats us in the heavenly places with Christ. And by believing, you have life in His name. And again, while it is a sad tragedy that Judas was, he betrayed the Lord and he died, and according to John and Acts, we know that he hanged himself, but Acts also records that somehow that rope broke or something like that because he fell on the rocks below and all of his bowels gushed out. It was a horrific death. A horrific death. But a death befitting of those who do not love the Lord. My friends, the murder of Jesus was the greatest sin in history, but yet in the providence of God and the sovereign will of God, the greatest sin ever committed also ushered in the greatest act of forgiveness and salvation and redemption in history. That by the sin of the fallen one, the redemption accomplished by the perfect one came into being. And so even though Satan thought he was dealing a death blow, Satan himself was committing his own suicide by bringing about his own destruction. Because the very kingdom he sought in the destruction of the Son of God was actually the kingdom of Christ redeeming and bringing countless people into his kingdom. That God's purposes will not be thwarted. Even by a satanically driven Judas Iscariot, even that will not thwart the purpose of God to redeem people. You think things have gone beyond what they can go for you? I've sinned too great. It's too bad for me. It's too late for me. I'm too old. I've done too many terrible things. That's hogwash. God is able to overpower even your sinful nature and save you and redeem you completely and fully if you would humble yourself before Him and confess and say, Lord, I'm wretched. I've sinned against You but I know that you can forgive me and I know that you will. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That is the power of God. And so I ask again, do you know Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we come to you And Lord, our hearts break at the story of Judas Iscariot. But Lord, I know that the Bible is clear with lots and lots of examples that offer warning signs to us. Do not go the way of Balaam. Do not go the way of Cain. Do not go the way of Judas. You warn us and you tell us, be watchful, beware, not to follow into darkness but to enter through the narrow gate, to go through the only way to eternal life, and that is through Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that You would use even today's sermon, this text, 
these concepts, Lord, this message to draw people away from darkness and into your kingdom through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we praise you. Amen.